1: Today we're reading 1st Samuel chapters 13 and 14. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. In chapter 13, the Philistines think that the new king of Israel is just a whole lot of trouble. Verse 1, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, And a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel thirty thousand chariots and six thousand horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude, and they came up and encamped in Michmash, to the east of Beth Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, as for Saul. He was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. First, we saw Saul's successive organization of troops and rebellion against the Philistines at Jabez-Gilead back in 1 Samuel chapter 11. Then in this passage, we see Saul's son, Jonathan. He attacks them at Geba. They've had enough. The Philistines decide to bring their overwhelming forces against Israel to put this uprising down once and for all. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 men on horses, and innumerable foot soldiers. Well, many of the Israeli soldiers run and hide in the caves at the site of this awesome Philistine force, and some of them run away across the Jordan River. Incidentally, verse 1 has caused some considerable confusion in the minds of scholars with the wording that's less than clear in their minds. To them, it's unclear because of what they expect it to say, not what it actually says. They expected to follow the pattern of the typical introduction of the kings of Israel and Judah presented in the books of First and Second Kings, along with First and Second Chronicles. In those books, we commonly see a declaration of the age when the particular king began reigning along with how many years he reigned. Therefore, these scholars are convinced that verse 1 here must have originally followed the same pattern and some words were lost in transmission over the centuries, they conjecture. Now, I'm not comfortable with that view at all. Nor were the editors of the King James Version or the New King James Version. These two translations translate the sentence from the words provided in the Hebrew text. Nothing more, nothing less. Other translations, however, insert guesses right there into the English text without any basis for their guesses whatsoever. Some of those translations place their guesses in brackets or perhaps they italicize them But others simply add their conjectures to this verse without even providing any indication regarding their actions. Although the wording of the text of verse 1 does seem a little vague, I think it best to stick with the original text on this one, a verse which seems to indicate a transition in Saul's reign and not a formal declaration of his reign. With the acceptance of verse 1 at face value, to actually mean what it says, we then understand that in the second year of Saul's reign, He appointed a permanent army of 3,000 men. Everyone else who fought did so as reservist. Then we see in verse 2 a fast-forward through Saul's reign down to the appearance of his son Jonathan. Here he's an adult leading his own troops at this point in time. We obviously have been spared the details of two or three decades of Saul's reign between chapters 12 and 13. Then in chapter 13 we see the turning point in Saul's reign. Saul gets on Samuel's wrong side in verses 8 through 14. Verse 8. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Well, Saul's getting mentally prepared in this passage for battle with the Philistines. He's checking items off his battle checklist. Oh yeah, then there's that pre-battle burnt sacrifice. Samuel's supposed to come take care of that, but seven days have passed and he's not here. Well, no problem. Saul thinks, I'll just do it myself. Samuel emerges just as Saul's finishing up with the sacrifice. And Samuel, he's fumed. What exactly was Saul's sin here? Well, notice verse 13. It says, You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. Well, the passage seems to make it clear that Saul had a commandment from the Lord himself that he violated. Samuel then declares that Saul's reign as king will end with Saul. No descendant kings. Whoops. That's too bad for Jonathan. Now, pay close attention to verse 13. Samuel says that had it not been for this act by Saul, that it would be Saul's throne and not subsequently David's throne that would have been established forever. So what's God looking for in a king's resume anyway? Well, there it is in verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. It's interesting to note that King David, Saul's successor, he was noted for that very trait. As a matter of fact, look at the verses that uh, talk about David's heart. In First Kings chapter 11, verse 4, we see Solomon compared to David when it says, "...for it was so, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David." And then in 1 Kings 14:8 we find Jeroboam compared to David. You have not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. And then in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 3, we have Abijah compared to David. It says, and he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of his father, David. And then the apostle Paul weighs in on this concerning David in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, when Paul says this, and when he had removed him, he raised up for them, David as king to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. David would end up being that man after God's own heart. The incident here between Samuel and Saul marks the point at which time it was declared that Saul's descendants would not occupy the throne of Israel. Later, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 through 23, Samuel there would decree that Saul's actual kingship would be prematurely cut short. For more information regarding David's commendable relationship with God, despite his personal shortcomings, read the notes on Psalm 51 and you'll see what I mean. Despite these shortcomings, God established an unconditional covenant with David. And look at the article entitled The Davidic Covenant in the topic section of BibleTrack.org. So how are we going to fight without weapons? First Samuel chapter 13, beginning with verse 15. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about six hundred men. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road to Ophrah, to the land of Shual, Another company turned to the road to Beth Horon, and another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for a sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to set the points of the goads. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So here Saul organizes his army as the Philistines are surrounding his forces. Saul and his meager army of 600 weaponless foot soldiers are encamped at Gibeah. That's about three miles north of Jerusalem. Just four miles northeast of Gibeah, that massive, well-equipped army of the Philistine soldiers is prepared for battle. Then the Philistine forces split into four divisions and surround the Israeli ragtag army. Hey, we have a big problem here, though. We don't have any weapons. The Philistines had confiscated all the weapons and made blacksmithing a forbidden trade among the Israelites, according to verse 19. In the whole army, only Saul and Jonathan had swords. The rest of the Israeli army had makeshift, well, garden implements and woodworking implements. Well, let's do a quick rough calculation of the odds. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and innumerable foot soldiers with real weapons— that's the philistines versus the israelis with 600 men two swords and garden tools oh well you just got to fight with what you have and let god do the rest now this would appear to be a regional conflict with the philistines enemy people were still firmly entrenched throughout israel all the way into the reign of david after king saul As a matter of fact, King Saul was a battle king. He didn't set up in a palace and rule his kingdom. He fought. Apparently, there was insufficient time to gather a larger army from the fighting capable men of Israel for this particular battle. The fact that these folks in Gibeah, located within the tribal territory of Benjamin, they were so dominated by the Philistines that they weren't even allowed to have their own blacksmiths. That verifies that They'd been totally victimized by these Philistines up to this point. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 1 through 15, Jonathan, Saul's son, he gets a crazy idea, but it works. Verse 1, Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about six hundred men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozez and the name of the other Sineh. The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash, and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. Then Jonathan said, Very well, let us cross over to these men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, Thus to us, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you something. Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them Into the hand of israel and jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him and they fell before jonathan and as he came after him his armor bearer killed them that first slaughter which jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land and there was trembling in the camp in the field and among all the people The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it was a very great trembling. The man representing the priesthood is on the scene here with Saul. His name is Ahijah. Most believe that this is Ahimelech, great-grandson of Eli. You'll recall that Eli was the one who raised Samuel. Ahijah is present for the purpose of representing God's will. We see in verse 3 that he was wearing an ephod. The ephod was the vest worn by the high priest as specified in Exodus chapter 28 and 29. In the ephod was contained the Urim and the Thummim, special stones that provided the priest with a special knowledge from God regarding the correct course of action. If you want to know more about the Urim and the Thummim, then uh, look at the notes that accompany uh, Exodus chapter 28 where it's discussed there. Anyway... The priest was apparently present for the purpose of assisting in the formulation of battle plans as God's representative. Jonathan leaves the camp with his armor bearer without consulting his dad or the high priest. He decides to toss out his own fleece before God. He'll just walk up to the Philistines and see what they say. If they say, just wait, we're coming after you, then we'll do nothing. But if they say, bring it on, let's see what you got, Then we will, just the two of us, wade right in and let them have it. What a crazy idea. But it works. They slay about 20 of the Philistines, just the two of them. Then they have some significant supernatural help from God when God sends an earthquake at that moment that Jonathan and his armor bearer finish their attack. Look at those Philistines panic. They turn on themselves and the Israelites hiding the caves come out to fight. What a sweet victory. Incidentally, you got to love what Jonathan says in verse 6 regarding their chances here. When he says this, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. He's telling his armor-bearer that when God's in control, it really doesn't matter how many comprise your assault force. Obviously, he learned a lesson or two from the Gideon episode back in Judges chapters 6 through 8. And then we find out about that earthquake in verses 16 to 23. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and there was the multitude melting away, and they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened, while Saul talked to the priest, that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle, and indeed every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, They also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. Well, Saul discovers that Jonathan and his armor-bearer are not there while he's listening to the commotion from the earthquake. Saul is talking to Ahijah, the priest, the high priest, about the situation. Saul decides that he'd like to have the Ark of the Covenant present for this battle. However, before anything can be arranged, the commotion among the Philistines increases and Saul dismisses the high priest from his mission. The Philistine army, well, they're in disarray. In their flight, they end up turning on each other with their own weapons. It also turns out that the Hebrew soldiers the Philistines had incorporated into the army were less than loyal. They switched sides and began fighting for the Israeli army. But wait, there's more. Those Israelis who had hidden themselves to avoid fighting, they decide to come out and fight as well. So the Israelis, they prevail. On to beth for the next battle. But beginning in verse 24 of chapter 14, we see that a little honey stops the campaign verse 24 and the men of israel were distressed that day for saul had placed the people under oath saying cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before i have taken vengeance on my enemies so none of the people tasted food now all the people of the land came to a forest and there was honey on the ground and when the people had come into the woods there was the honey dripping but no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb, and put his hand to his mouth, and his countenance brightened. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day, and the people were faint. But Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, so the people were very faint." And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. Then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, "'Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep, "'slaughter them here and eat, "'and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood.' "'So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night "'and slaughtered it there. "'Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. "'This was the first altar that he built to the Lord. "'Now Saul said, "'Let us go down after the Philistines by night "'and plunder them until the morning light. "'And let us not leave a man of them. "'And they said, "'Do whatever seems good to you.' Then the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die, but not a man among all the people answered him then he said to all israel you be on one side and my son jonathan and i will be on the other side and the people said to saul do what seems good to you therefore saul said to the lord god of israel give a perfect lot so saul and jonathan were taken but the people escaped and saul said cast lots between my son jonathan and me so jonathan was taken then saul said to jonathan tell me what you have done and Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand, so now I must die. Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Well, Saul's army here is on a roll. He gets excited and issues a curse on anybody who eats before they finish off the enemy. One big problem, though, his son Jonathan didn't get the word. He tasted a little bit of honey, and it perks him right up. However, upon being informed concerning Saul's decree, he even questions the wisdom of Saul's oath in verses 29 and 30. Though faint from hunger, Saul's army thoroughly thrashes these Philistines from Michmash to Ajalon. After the victorious outcome of the battle against the Philistines, Saul has to straighten out a little bit of deviation on his army's part in that they partook of the Philistine cattle in violation of Levitical guidelines. In other words, they didn't drain the blood. He establishes an altar to set this issue straight. You'll recall from verse 3 that the high priest is present and he's wearing the ephod containing the Urim and the Thummim. These items were commonly used to determine God's will through the process of casting lots. However, when Saul could not get a clearance from Jehovah to proceed further in the pursuit of the Philistines, He decides it must be because there's sin in the camp. So here we go with that casting of lots thing again. It's talked about in Proverbs chapter 16. Look at my notes there if you wonder about it. And the lot falls on Jonathan, identifying him as the snack culprit. Saul decides that Jonathan must die. After all, an oath is an oath. Hebrews were very serious about fulfilling their oaths, regardless of how ill-conceived those oaths really were. Jonathan even agrees that he himself must die. But the people talk Saul out of it. So after a great day at battle, everybody goes home to live to fight another day. The campaign against the Philistines stops, and it stopped over a little bit of honey. Well, I tell you this, that wouldn't be the last fight that would be broken up by a, a little honey. And I'm confident that you'll take that last sentence as intended humor here. And then we meet Saul's family in verses 47 to 52 as we close out the chapter. It says in verse 47, So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jeshua, and Malchishua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn, Mirab, and the name of the younger, Michael. The name of Saul's wife was Ahanoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abael, Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. Here at the end of chapter 14, it's finally time for introductions. Remember these people. We'll be coming back to many of them as we read on. Notice verse 52. Saul understood the value of a strong defense. It says, Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. There was no peace for Saul. He was a warring king with a carefully chosen army. In addition, we see in verse 47 that Saul also fought against Moab, Ammon, Edom, and against the kings of Zobah, which was north of Israel. In verse 48, toss in the Amalekites to round out Saul's battles against the enemies of Israel. However, without question, Saul's main war...